Hello, everyone. I'm Eric Golden, and welcome to Making Markets. This show explores the psychology and structure that make up markets all over the world. Each week, we speak to experts about a different market so you can see what actually happens when money changes hands. From mainstream stock and bond markets to esoteric niches like vineyards, antique art, and crypto, we explain the transactions that underpin our economy. Making Markets is part of the Colossus family of podcasts, and you can find all our podcasts, including edited transcripts, show notes, and other resources at joincolossus.com. Eric Golden is the CEO of Canopy Capital. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the views of Canopy Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes and should not be construed or relied on as investment, legal, or tax advice. Clients of Canopy Capital may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast, including positions that are contrary to the opinions offered. My guest today is Pierce Crosby, the general manager of TradingView. As someone who personally uses TradingView every day, I can attest to the platform's exceptional features and user-friendly interface. Pierce walks us through the incredible journey of TradingView, the largest finance website globally, boasting 50 million users in 180 countries. In our conversation, we delve into TradingView's business model and its role in the brokerage industry and explore how consumers like myself leverage the platform across various asset classes and geographies. Please enjoy this conversation with Pierce Crosby. Pierce, the interesting thing I was joking about with a friend was that in the trading world or markets, there seems to be two people, two types of people, people that use Bloomberg and people that use TradingView. And although the story of Bloomberg has been told many times, and it's a great one, TradingView is a far less known company. So I'm excited to do this today. But maybe an interesting place to start would be how did TradingView become so ubiquitous across every chart, it seems like on the internet is powered by TradingView. First, Eric, I'm glad to tell a story. And broadly speaking, TradingView's story is just hard grit with an amazing amount of technology on the back end. And I've worked at a couple of technology companies now. It's safe to say TradingView was such a breath of relief, I would say, in showing up and being like, okay, does this actually work? Is this technology really as well developed as we think it is? And there was no surprises on the other side because it is. And these guys have been building TradingView for what's now 13 years, actually. So a lot of background of getting to it. You mentioned you're being at multiple tech companies. Why don't you walk me through what type of companies were you at before you got to TradingView? Yeah. So basically, I was working at Reuters for a long time and I moved over to what essentially was a company called StockTwits. Now, StockTwits was, at the time, a social app. It was very similar to Twitter. The main focus was basically investing with your friends. And it became pretty ubiquitous, I think, through a lot of the trader community that I used to actually be part of when we were on Yahoo Finance message boards a long, long time ago. So I did five years there. I was the first New York employee and ended up... When I left, I think we were around 50 or something like that, which is pretty funny because when I joined TradingView, we were right around the 50 mark. And now we're, as we'll get into, 700 people strong. Definitely a growth trajectory I was not expecting whatsoever. But StockTwits in some ways was an instrumental part of my upbringing because you're exposed to a lot of the key players in the industry. And for those who don't know, some of the original finance blogs that are out there today actually were started by StockTwits. So when I think of like Reform Broker, Josh is an absolute legend in the space, but he actually started his entire blogging experience on StockTwits. 
And the same goes for, say, Michael Batnick, who actually at the time, they weren't even connected and they ended up working together as a result. Some great history and built me in terms of like my foundation in fintech and that cross-section of tech and investing in general. So it sounds like there's a bit of a StockTwits mafia that Howard spun off out of that company. We do call him the godfather for a reason. That's very true. Yeah. And I know you have a good relationship. What led to the leap to go try your hand at TradingView? We were hitting an inflection point at StockTwits where the business was, for those who don't know, building a brokerage on the back end of StockTwits. And brokerage is not something that honestly I know anything about. There were also going to be a lot of headwinds around compliance and ultimately becoming a more substantial financial company versus a tech company. At the same time, I'd known TradingView guys for a long time, and they knew me because we both have a social network component to the business. I actually stepped down as part of a transition plan and ultimately spent a lot of time in Mexico surfing. And at the time, the founder of TradingView came to me and said, hey, listen, we really need somebody to help run this thing. And what was really interesting is the technology was really there. And so I didn't have to do a lot. At StockTwits, we always had the problem of not enough engineers, not enough talent. And so as a result, squeezing water out of a rock versus TradingView is just a wellspring of technology and capability. And so it was a much easier ask, if you will. So they finally convinced me. Initially, the plan was to move to Chicago, but I convinced them that New York was the place to be, knowing full well the fintech ecosystem here is actually very strong now. I joined 2018, 2019, the right time considering the scale that we've grown to today. So maybe for people, I joked at the beginning about Bloomberg and TradingView, but maybe for people that haven't used TradingView or aren't as aware with what it is, can you give people just a sketch of what is TradingView, the application? What are the main products that you offer? Obviously, for the Bloomberg audience, we definitely want to know what we don't have that Bloomberg does have. They're the most ubiquitous in the institutional space. But really, what we focused on was the exact opposite market. The everyday investors, mom and pop investors, people who ultimately don't have a couple thousand bucks a month to pay for a Bloomberg terminal, but they do have, say, 15 bucks a month to pay for a lot of tools and features that we build. And the foundations of the business is charting as an application. Before this, the founders also built two other companies. One was called eSignal and then MultiCharts, which was a desktop software. And then TradingView was the third iteration of that. But they've been building really hardcore financial products for over 20 years. And so TradingView was build all this stuff, but make it really sleek, easy to use, and intuitive to the average investor. They've always been working on the more advanced customer segment. And oftentimes, I'll actually categorize our customers as Robinhood graduates. And that's not to say that Robinhood isn't now building a ton of stuff to basically help the more advanced customer segment. But at the time when I coined the idea, a buy-sell button is great. Obviously, it provides a lot of value because there's no commissions. It's very sleek, intuitive, and easy to use. But at some point in time, you're going to run out of information. And then the question is, okay, where do I actually get any information from Robinhood? I mean, they have news, which is awesome. They have a price chart, which is great. But when it comes to really deep diving into asset classes or sectors or global markets, there's really no solution there. That's when TradingView came along. And at the end of the day, we now have, in terms of data feeds, probably 250 different markets we cover. I was looking it up the other day. We have about 1.6 million instruments on TradingView that you can chart and track and do analysis on. And then with some coming releases in the near future, we're actually going to double that. So it'll be close to 3.2 million unique instruments that you can actually track and analyze on TradingView. You say mom and pop, and maybe this is the evolution. The level of sophistication of people on there and maybe get a little bit into the social side too is surprising to me. When I think of mom and pop, maybe the day trading phenomenon of the 90s, I think of like the E-Trade baby and 
people buying and selling for some reason that came up to me. But the level of analysis that people are posting on there is not what I would describe as mom and pop. I am super curious. Are there people that are using it and they like to see the charts and make a decision? And then there's how do you segment all the way at the prosumer or mini hedge fund level? I frame it as mom and pop because that is probably the average, right? If I was thinking about the broader average, we have people that are just starting in their path. And then we have people on the hardcore side building custom indicators and scripts using our in-house coding language on top of TradingView. So there's an insane spectrum. It's really hard to put a, a single face to a name. But I would say that probably kind of a barbell, right? So you have these people who have 10,000 bucks and are trying to put it to work, knowing full well that they're thinking long-term, which is great. And even if it's a small amount of money, there's no reason why they shouldn't be doing analysis on the five companies that they invest in. Or maybe they're an early tech founder and they have some shares in a company that went public. People love to track stuff like that. And it doesn't really require a ton of sophistication to still build a watch list of companies you care about. And so that's one end of the barbell. Then the other side, which I consider to be the more prosumer type audience, like I said, we have our own coding language on TradingView. The most bizarre constructions of technical analysis or advanced fundamental analysis is being done on TradingView. And these guys are hardcore. In simple terms, we think of them as like the interactive brokers equivalent, people that maybe they're not actually certified as like in a market participants, but in terms of pretty much everything up until then, they manage their own money or they're managing other people's money and they're using TradingView every day as the backbone for their analysis and research. I was actually right before this talking to a guy who has built an insane business selling scripts and indicators as a service on top of TradingView. And we don't particularly take an interest in taking a cut out of that. We just allow that business to exist on TradingView. But safe to say, it's a huge and profitable business for a lot of people, is building their own technical analysis businesses inside of the TradingView environment. So in this case, there's some kind of elements of Shopify, more so than say just a technical analysis shop. But yeah, huge spectrum in between. So I actually think of myself as smack dab in the middle. I probably am a little more sophisticated than the guy who's just getting started. But honestly, there's no way I'm going to code custom scripts. And so I actually always think of myself as like the average customer. Safe to say we're trying to broaden the appeal to different customer segments. But at the end of the day, mid-30s has a couple dollars to spend, was looking at markets, trying to figure out what's what. That's pretty much the broad spectrum, I guess. As just a personal user, PineScript, is that the language? PineScript is a language, yeah. It's a custom coding language. TradeStation initially had a language called Easy Language back in the day. And the founders were really big fans of that. So similar to that. I'm sure I'm not the first person to do this, but I wasn't throwing myself into PineScript, but I wanted to do a back test that someone asked me and wondering what the cheapest way. And I used ChatGBT to write the PineScript code for me. And it worked. That was an experience that I've been waiting for of instead of having to tell a developer to like help me get this the way I wanted it to, that it actually worked. The PineScript integration to ChatGPT is not something that we were expecting either. Safe to say there may be some potential liability issues there in the future. But at the end of the day, PineScript is a verified trademark of TradingView. We're very controlling of it. But at the same time, we're extremely happy to see that ChatGPT is ultimately crawled our documentation, which is open source, it's on the web, and then ultimately has created a way for people to generate indicators without knowing anything about code. No code environments. It's amazing. But yeah, I can easily create a script using ChatGPT and all of a sudden be trading these custom scripts with TradingView, which I don't know why, but it seems insane to me. Here we are. 
the whole thing does was just one of the first things I was like, I wonder if this would work. And then I did. And I was like, oh my God, that's powerful. But also with power comes danger. You're a data provider, visualization, charting. And I know that a lot of the users are also actively trading. Did you go the full step of becoming a broker and then being able to buy and sell on TradingView? Or is that done in partnership? Explain that business model. Do I have it accurate? Yeah, we definitely did not go the route of becoming a full broker. Thankfully, I had an experience at Stocktwits to know well enough that it's a big ask to go down the route of becoming a fully licensed broker. Even to become an introducing broker is a big test to the DNA of a company. And TradingView, I think, knew it's knitting well enough to not go outside of what they know well. If we were to become a compliant broker, there's a ton of filings you have to do on a quarterly basis, as well as certain capital controls that ultimately have to happen. And it seemed like this laundry list was piling up bigger and bigger. And we knew full well that it could be an enormous business for us because we have so many customers all over the world. But we've come to terms with the fact that we're really good at one thing, which is building technology. When it comes to asset management, when it comes to trading, when it comes to brokerage in general, we're best to provide the front ends for all these providers. But I think that we really have to stick to our knitting and avoid going into the actual money management side of things. Really one degree of separation. But what we realized, as you said, was we definitely couldn't complete that workflow because we weren't a broker ourselves. So we actually had to go out into the market and find partners who could integrate to TradingView directly. And by doing so, basically, we can allow those customers to complete that full life cycle because they come to TradingView not knowing what they want. They ultimately find a good idea or find an investment subject they like. They may open up an account with a brokerage. And the next step in that life cycle is actually to execute a trade. And because we ultimately were never going to be the provider on the execution side of things, we had to plug in brokers. And so today we have about 50, 50 odd brokers are integrated trading view. We have a couple very large releases that I'd love to share as soon as I possibly can, but hopefully soon enough. And yeah, more on the way. I think by the end of next year, we'll probably be closer to 70, 75 integrated brokers, whether you're in Australia, whether you're in the UK, whether you're in South Africa, Brazil, Turkey, I mean, India, we have brokers in almost every market now. The notion that most brokerage firms or trading firms, that was the business they built first. And then they tried to give research and trading and give the user a plethora of tools. What's so interesting is you guys started backwards to the brokerage model and then connected. How much of that was strategic? And number two, I want to get back to the charts of why did the charts become so accepted by all these competitors? Because you can imagine if you're Binance or Kraken or Interactive, you have a really good reason not to use someone else's tech or so it seemed that way. Everyone built their own. How did it become so acceptable to use yours? I think the reason we were built backward was actually totally by chance. And this is the luck of the draw in the technology ecosystem. A lot of people ascribe, oh, we were prepared. We did all this research. We knew exactly what was going to happen in the market. Safe to say, we didn't know commissions were going to go to zero. We didn't know that being a broker was extremely regulated and ultimately would hinder your growth internationally. At the same time, we didn't know that a company that was built once could be rebuilt twice over and then actually be successful the third time around. A lot of confounding factors that you could really chalk up to the right place, right time at the end of the day. And so I think in terms of why we were built this way, it's just the nature of the founders being technologists through and through since they were kids. It's actually crazy, but our CTO is world ranked on StarCraft because He's an engineer and he's a gamer since day one. It's literally in their DNA. They're both product-led guys. In terms of the acceptance of TradingView overall by the ecosystem, 
I think the confounding factor there is ultimately, I think in general, margins on the brokerage industry have changed dramatically, even the last five years. And as a result, there's a lot less levers that people can pull inside of a brokerage to make their product really differentiated. And the reality is, most of the focus today is what markets you can offer, what products you can offer, and what your corresponding costs are for those products. And the problem is, is you have the new incumbents, if you will, say the Robin Hoods of the world, who are essentially setting the standard for what is actually going to be required from an asset management perspective. You're not really allowed to charge people for equity trading anymore. It's simply just a faux pas, if you will, in the industry. And as a result, there's way less levers to pull if I'm, say, Charles Schwab now, which is the owner of TD Ameritrade, because ultimately they don't have that margin of being a equity broker. Now options is the big thing because there's still a lot of margin there. So safe to say that all chalks up to we have a slimmer budget for everything across the board because we don't really have access to that capital. But we know full well that one of the biggest competitive factors of our business is being able to offer a lot of tools, research, data visualizations. And to build this is not easy. Our team, in terms of engineers overall, we have 70 people who just work on our charting. That's safe to say that an enormous undertaking. If I go to the first broker in the stack and say, how many people are you actually focused on building out your charts or building out your data visualization? To say 70 people is actually a bit of a shock. It's more like two or three. And that's really kind of scale of cuts that have been made to product teams inside of brokerage, et cetera. And so that all happened on the back end, like I said, very much by luck standards. And all of a sudden, everybody's looking around in terms of who's actually going to be the person to help us offset these budget cuts. And what that ends up being is there's only a few providers that really do this well, but then also do it very cost efficiently. And we usually rank either number one or number two on that list because we're extremely cost competitive on the technology side of things. And in terms of our technology, I stand behind it as the number one from a technology perspective when it comes to charting. So we were really just a symptom of the industry in that case. And as soon as some of the larger players like interactive brokers decide to throw away their charts, it is a signal to the larger industry as well. There's a lot of people who've come to us because they realize, oh, interactive brokers have been working on charting for 30 years. They're throwing away their charting and they're embedding trading view into their products. And that in itself is a huge hat tip, I think. And ultimately the cost that we charge, which is to be extremely accommodative for partners because we know full well that it's a smaller budget, it's a smaller industry now. And thus we're aiming to be more cost efficient in general because we know full well Whatever a broker is taking on from a cost perspective, that ends up getting passed on to the end customer. If we can do some small thing for the industry, it's to lower costs to the end customer because that 1% a year, that really does add up to a lot at the end of your investing life cycle. In the early years, did you just give charting away to get going or has it always been a source of revenue for TradingView that you went to brokers and said, we can do this better than you can. You should pay us instead of paying internal. We've always charged something for it. I'll say that. As the product grows and changes over time, we've split apart a bunch of different options. And this was when I joined a little bit of that process. They had a product on the shelf, but at the end of the day, it wasn't really priced or wasn't really built to accommodate a bunch of different types of workflows. So if I'm to go to Refinitiv as an example partner of ours, 
their needs are way different than those of interactive brokers. And those are way different than the needs of Binance or Coinbase, all customers. And so in which case, we now split apart what essentially chalks up to charts, but there's a bunch of different versions of that and then distribute those out to various verticals. But we've always charged something, safe to say, but we now have a laddering system, which if you really want everything, we can give full access to basically a white labeled version of TradingView. And some products, you wouldn't even know that they're out there in the world, but there is somewhere in say India, a completely separate TradingView. That's not TradingView. It's some other company, but they license everything we have and that's their whole business. And so we do a ton of that now as well. But yeah, it's always cost something. In the early days, yeah, there's some key partners that basically set us on our way. I would say the Investopedia example is a good one. Investing.com was actually an early partner of ours. A lot of retail customers would come to investing for news, but then they would realize that, oh, I need some charts as well. And so investing was very happy to have us as a partner because we could quickly give their customers a lot of tools and research all in one place. One of the things I want to get closer to is the reason why I was checking the history was when I think about a broker's desire to keep those eyeballs so afraid to lose that trade to someone else, where it's a more of a commodity, low margin business, the notion that they're going to click that chart, then launch to TradingView, which suddenly opens up a supermarket of brokers. Is it just a belief the average TradingView is not going to have relationship with multiple brokers? Or does the actual average TradingView have multiple broker relationship? It's more the former. I'd say the average customer on TradingView has a single broker. The only caveat to that is that when it comes to multi-asset, we obviously have been a great beneficiary of the crypto era. And so in a lot of cases, now people have two brokers. They have, say, their standard investment broker, which is more equities, futures, options, fixed income, your life savings, if you're thinking about investing for the long term, then they have the YOLO account. And that's a lot of crypto-related investments and things like that. So we usually integrate both of them and thus being on TradingView is a very awesome workflow because you can actually have access to your Binance account as well as access to your TradeStation account, as an example. I think there was a lot of initial concern specifically around the commoditization of a broker or something like that. But I think for folks who have really taken this on full bore, the reality is, is if you can't provide it, somebody else will. And ultimately, customers really want choice. And we are the ones to provide that level of choice, the level of customization and the level of tools that they really need to become sophisticated investors. And what we've often found is that people simply have to opt in because they want to be able to provide TradingView as an option for their customers versus even a few years ago, there was a lot of what's TradingView, who really cares? And I think less and less, that's the story now, thankfully, which makes honestly my job easier. But at the end of the day, it's a true symptom of our growth as well. On average, around the world, we see something close to 45 million people visiting the platform. That just shows that from a customer acquisition standpoint, it's a way larger funnel than it is a commoditization engine. Because to work with us is to be exposed to this scale of customers versus the reverse, which is Maybe you lose a handful of customers because your TradingView implementation then redirects them to a platform or something like that. But I think that's less the concern these days, especially considering competitive advantages for brokers is going to be much more around what added value can you really have on top of your platform. And then also thinking about asset management, not just trading, which I think is huge for people who are actually thinking about money management, long-term investing, do I need an RAA, things like that. 
And these are all services that ultimately brokers will start building on to become more verticalized overall. I think that's where a lot of the value chain is going to be gathered in the next wave. You mentioned crypto, which I think for a lot of traders, that might have been a big introduction to trading view, the application. A lot of it is technical analysis, and you can imagine the charts that are always flying around. I know that people do a multi-asset class, but do you segment by these are our crypto customers or equity customers or option customers? First off, most of them do overlap. I will say that where there's a ton of customers who trade multiple assets on TradingView. I think in terms of the buckets of customers, we have a ton of data around what people have on their watch list. And obviously we can anonymize that and then share aggregate stats across TradingView's 50 million people, how many of them are actually looking at crypto on a day-to-day basis during the boom cycle. So 2020 to early 22. Crypto accounted for almost at 1.50% of our total business. And that has since come down. But meanwhile, throughout the business been around since 2012, the first actual big business on TradingView was equities. And then we had a ton of FX investors in Europe. But equities has been very slow and steady throughout. So it's a gradual growth story versus when 2018, if I came to TradingView, I barely heard about crypto. It wasn't really even part of the story. And then in 2019, 2020, we became the dominant location for everybody when it came to crypto. And as a result, growth feeds more growth. All of a sudden, it became a huge percentage of our business in total. A lot of that audience is quieted down. But interestingly enough, our business internationally is exploding because FX is consistent throughout. And there's really isn't that kind of boom and bear cycle that you might see in other markets. And likewise, the equity market is still extremely interesting, even with high interest rates. And so you do see consistent growth story over time versus some of these more manic cycles that you see in other assets. But even so, crypto as an asset class, it is extremely volatile in general. And anybody who knows traders knows that volatility is like the number one, number two name of the game. So it still remains a huge area of interest for our investors. I don't know how to phrase this or try to go after the point, but Howard Lisden's quote of the degenerate economy, how much of the growth of TradingView is related to the YOLO, zero-day option, crypto, just high-risk degeneracy trading versus talking about asset management, wealth management, feels like those are different segments. How much of that drives TradingView growth in customers or usage? I think that we inherit a boom and a bust. So we never hinge our business on these kind of manias, safe to say. There are periods of time where I can look at a chart of our growth and see, oh, yeah, that's the day that GameStop actually did this or something like that. So we can see those moments on a chart, but they're still very far in the dust in terms of our growth today. I think Howard's point is extremely valid, degenerate gambling economy. I think one thing to keep in mind is those initial Robinhood traders, and I say Robinhood broadly, of course, not specific to Robinhood, but those people who may have encountered markets for the first time in 2021, they definitely don't think of investing, say, the same way that maybe our 2020 investors do. And that's more long-term growth stories, investing in companies you care about and actually holding on for 10 years versus flipping these things intra-hour, intra-second We definitely benefit as a symptom of the meme stock mania or the crypto mania, but our founders are very much of the perspective that, listen, these things come and go and you can't really invest a ton of time in it because you got to focus on ultimately what's better for the the longer term investor or the people who ultimately are doing this for a day in, day out perspective, knowing full well that if crypto goes sour, 
if we hinged our entire business in crypto, all of a sudden our entire business goes sour. So I think that's been a very important perspective for me, actually, knowing full well that my alma mater, Stocktoits, obviously capitalized on mania. They essentially were the ones who really were the centerpiece, if you will, for the meme stock mania. I know that Reddit got a lot of attention around Wall Street bets, but for anyone who's been around long enough, they know full well, Stocktoits was the original Wall Street bets. And that was really the DNA of the business was people who were basically throwing options trades on things that hadn't traded in two days. But ultimately, there was potential upside of 100x or 1,000x on some of these names. It's interesting. I don't know if it's going too far or not. I think that in a lot of cases, I think people are fed up with the meme stock mania, whereas people just want to make consistent money or growth. We definitely don't close our door to either audiences. But yeah, one of the reasons we've been late to options in terms of trading view is that in the perspective of the team, options is really only made for professional asset managers. Options for retail is a surefire way to blow up your account very fast. And so it's actually pretty interesting because the marketing of options for retail actually does not really correspond with the profitability of options for retail. That success fail rate is very similar to the FX industry. Most people blow up trading options as they do blow up trading FX. It's not like your mom and pop everyday person who's going to throw thousand bucks in Apple and hope for the best. Honestly, I think the idea of buying a few brands and waiting for the next bull market is awesome. But the problem with options is you basically expire whatever in a month, and then you're left with nothing to hold the bags. That's probably our long-term philosophy. But to answer your point, of course, we benefit from the options industry as well. Huge business. Thus, we see that growth on TradingView. I have a bias because I think my view is aligned with yours of a bit skeptical. I think people will say, I don't have the data of how much of the options market is retail or institutional trading. I know on fixed income, it's much smaller than it is on the equity side. So it's hard for me to have as strong of a view. But I do feel like they're a very powerful tool to get in trouble really quickly. And the people that talk to me most about them are retail, not professional. I know it's hidden as, oh, this is good. The markets use these, desks are using these to hedge. And I'm like, if someone shows me the data, I'll believe it. And I'm just completely open-minded. But more often than not, I usually hear horror stories of retail attempting to do some trade that they read somewhere and it goes bad. If you look at Wall Street Bets, I think the most liked posts on there pretty much every month is somebody who did some kind of crazy option spread trade and they wake up one morning and they're down like 35,000%. And they're like, guys, sorry, I got to sell the house. You never see that with, say, standard equities or even micro futures. It's much more reasonable just based on the scale of the moves because it's a fraction of what's moving versus the options market. But people like to take bets sometimes, so can't say no, I guess. Oh, yeah. It will never go away. There will always be that desire and that animal spirit to make huge bets and people to win money very quickly and lose it very quickly. As I'm listening, the selfish side of me is, oh, my God, I want the trading view data. How protected is the trading view data? Like You can imagine you're sitting on 50 million people's interest at any given point in time. A lot of people will talk to you about large flow traders that are mostly just trying to understand what retail is going to do to get in front of it, to get on the other side of it. You're a data provider and you didn't get out the brokerage route, but is all of that internal data you guys are collecting on every time? A simple, cynical example, that if you start seeing one ticker be typed in way more often than another ticker, that's a pretty good piece of information that a lot of people would probably pay a lot of money for, just like they pay for order flow from the exchanges. What's the status of that data? 
It's funny you ask. A lot of people would love to know what's the status of that data. In my previous days working in other fintech companies, we did actually create a bunch of what's called alternative data and then fed that out the back end of those businesses to ultimately plug into hedge funds, asset managers, et cetera, who consume petabytes of data on a real-time basis to influence trading decisions. So it's a very well-known space and people love to have access to that data because as you said, Search is what happens before the trade actually occurs. And so to have search level data is actually to have knowledge about what is going to end up in the book once that trade's actually executed. So safe to say we have a lot of that data, but in terms of being able to share it, it's interesting because when I joined TradingView, I thought I could build a whole new line of business here. And it's actually a fantastic area of data that could be served out to institutional customers. I got a flat no. And I was actually pretty surprised by that because again, a lot of money to be had on the table, but they simply said that much like Facebook's locked down a lot of their APIs and first-party data, specifically because they realized the value of that data is basically inequivalent. You can't buy it anywhere else. And in this case, it's extremely important that they actually hold on to it and protect it. And we actually feel pretty much the exact same, which is to say, we will not sell the data It's in the long-term interest of the investor. And at the end of the day, big asset managers can find data elsewhere. There's plenty of other data sets out there that'll get you some idea of what retail is doing. But not only do we have the data on TradingView, what's very interesting and very important is that we have our tools plugged into the larger financial web. This is more, not our charting solutions, but some of our other web-based solutions. Every time somebody queries say the financial post or some of these kind of large financial publications, we get a ping to our system that says, hey, this website is requesting this information around this ticker to be served to their end customer. We don't see the end customer data, but we do know that this website is pinging us for this data. So all of a sudden, we don't just have data for tradingview.com. We have data for every partner who actually queries our databases for that kind of market data. So I can tell you globally, Of the 55,000 websites that use TradingView in some way, shape, or form, I know exactly the most popular ticker across all of those sites or each individual ones of those sites. And there's a lot of information there because it's not just TradingView traffic, it's the entire financial web. Basically, we have a pulse on exactly what people are looking at. I wouldn't want to be the person in charge of the data set because I want it so bad to just play with it and to see what it could do. That's impressive. That's an impressive stance that you took not to. You mentioned global customers. I think we're very American-centric and more about the stories about GameStop and Wall Street bets. But on the international side, how do the different markets look? Is the American trader more active across markets? How does Europe compare to Asia across asset class or type or usage? So yeah, it's different per country, obviously. What's really interesting is to look at emerging markets and what assets they trade or track. In the US, we really care about stocks. In many markets, I'd say like a good example is Malaysia. They don't care about anything that's domestically being done. They're only trading Forex and crypto. And why is that? Their currency itself is extremely volatile. And so net wealth, actually, they like to put in hard assets. Oftentimes, they're watching commodities markets. But in a lot of cases now, they're watching crypto markets because this is a way easier asset to use in terms of in and out versus walking down to the local bank and selling your gold, which ultimately is not really sustainable long-term. So you have a lot of these emerging economies that are very interested in crypto. 
but they're also watching their own domestic currencies go up and down because it essentially affects what they're going to be able to buy at the grocery store, quite literally. A good example is Turkey. We have a very large business in Turkey and Turkish Lira, it's a roller coaster. I don't know how anybody can keep their net wealth in these things because at the end of the day, you wake up tomorrow, you're 20% richer or poorer. It's a totally parabolic curve. And so as a result, you see a lot of interest in crypto. Turkey actually does have a pretty strong domestic economy. So you have a lot of public companies that people really care about, especially in the oil and gas space and commodity space as well. They do watch our markets as well. Interesting, almost every country still watches Apple. It basically you know, says a lot, says Apple is a powerhouse, but it also says that people really care about the US economy because in a lot of cases, whatever we do ripples out through the broader world. And some of these companies like Apple, Google, Tesla, they're not just American stories, they're global stories. And I think India is an example. India loves US stocks, which is really interesting because there's a ton of controls about domestically what you can actually purchase in India. It's really hard to actually get your hands on international assets because India wants you to invest in India. But safe to say, a lot of people do now invest in U.S. companies, even though they are in India. And that's you know, through a few new companies who have basically specialized in making international assets easily available to, say, a local Indian customer. But yeah, India is a huge fan of U.S. equities. It doesn't like crypto at all, actually, comparatively. I was thinking about, I don't know if I have it off the top of my head because mine's now customized. But I think if you go to TradingView and you don't have an account, the generic watch list. I was curious how those things got on there. I think Apple or Tesla or maybe Bitcoin or SPX is on there. If I aggregated the top tickers across all of TradingView, I'm not looking for alpha or the release of the data, but what might be something that people would be surprised is just globally watched that's not obvious? I'd say one of the most interesting is obviously oil. People actually internationally watch oil way more than we do in the U.S., and I assume that it's because it really does impact their local economy. But that was pretty interesting. I don't really care about oil. Well, I live in New York, so I don't even have a car to pay gas. But safe to say oil is like one of the biggest outliers, I would say, internationally versus say what we see in the US. Looking at that data globally, I would say Facebook has a much larger impact than we know or really think. In the US, I think Facebook gets a lot of shit for being a channel for misinformation and stuff like that. But in terms of like global scale, few companies have this portfolio of social apps that really dominate international markets. You go to most Asia, WeChat and WhatsApp are pretty much the only way to text each other because people don't actually use traditional channels knowing full well that they're tracked by whatever government it is you live in. And so WhatsApp is an example is like the only encrypted network that's available in a lot of Southeast Asia, and thus they use it as their main connection point. So in a lot of these markets, Meta is the company to watch as a result. And so that actually just show up in watch lists because the brand is so well known. Bitcoin is very high up there. I would say the drop-off rate is enormous though. There's very few other crypto companies that make global headlines from a watch list perspective. Because I think at the end of the day, there's a ton of infighting and who's top dog and these level one, level two tokens and coins and stuff. But there's no clear winner. Coin is really the only thing that's on most crypto people's watch list overall, which is heartening, honestly, because I was getting concerned just the scale of the number of these tokens and coins being offered versus what's actually got some legs. Yeah, I'd say that those are the majors. There's a couple of Tesla. 
is extremely popular in LATAM as well as South America. NVIDIA is also one that is huge international appeal. What's interesting is that Amazon really doesn't get a ton of cred internationally. Almost everybody has it on their watch list domestically. But in terms of international players, it really doesn't even register. And I think it's because they do a lot of white label partnerships. You don't even know you're using Amazon if you're in Southeast Asia, but it's all built on Amazon Rails. But thus, you don't really see that as a brand name or a household name. So one that we talked about in the past, which we can get into if you're interested in, is just when I thought about this from someone building a startup, data costs so much and you're a purveyor of data. If there was an asset class, a piece of data, what is an area you're most excited or want, but have yet been able to add to TrainingView? I would say what I'm very interested in is consumer trend data. And we have a lot of data from central banks. So we have almost every central bank and their corresponding data, as well as things like Bureau of Labor Statistics or Bureau of Economic Affairs. We do track a lot of first-party data from various government agencies. However, it's very hard to get a hold of consumer trend data. And I think a lot of people that trade retail stocks, meaning things that actually rely on brick and mortar and rely on individual consumers buying and selling things. We don't have a ton of that first-party consumer data. We're looking more into that because it is an area that we don't cover as tightly as, say, the commodity space. Because in commodities, we have pretty much every product you possibly imagine, whether it be one of the most interesting ones I just learned about the other day from a pretty actual substantial hedge fund who has started using TradingView, because we now actually have a professional tier of our overall product. So we got on a call with these guys, they're commodities traders, and they only trade the spread between Brent and WTI. That's their entire business. And that's when there's a price mismatch between basically European price of oil versus US price of oil. And they will capture those spreads in enormous chunks. And they also work directly with the suppliers, et cetera. So they know a lot about the market. That's the only product they trade. So we have it on TradingView. Safe to say it's a bizarrely niche product, but we have it. So now I'm trying to think about other workflows that we don't really have. And so consumer is an interesting one for me. So credit card data and things like that, very compelling. Someone who is probably one of the biggest buyers of data, which I don't think people understand. We just talked about a little bit with your data, but in the money management investing business, data can be one of the most expensive pieces. Everyone likes to talk about models, but I've always thought that the data is actually the oil. What's one of the areas that's something that without calling out a provider, it's more, I'm more interested in the data set itself of something that's very expensive, but is underused by TradingView that surprises you? I would say we do purchase options data. We don't use it today. So that's a huge one. But I would say besides that, in terms of more interesting data sets that we underutilize, this is actually very sign of the times. We're doing a lot more around news data, news information. And we actually struck a deal with Refinitive and Dow Jones simultaneously, where if you are a pro subscriber on TradingView, you actually get full access to all Dow Jones and Reuters newswires. People don't really think of that as being a hugely important data set until you start to realize that those are the two primary newswires they also sell to every hedge fund on the street. And that is essentially the top of the line when it comes to event-driven news and event-driven information. And so we now have that. And we really don't use it as we should. I think in the near future, we'll start thinking about more products that we can build around those data sets because news trading is very different than technical trading. And in terms of workflows for that, we have to get a little smarter 
as to how customers interact with news on TradingView. But in total, yeah, we have about 165 or so different RSS feeds that we consume from various providers like the Nikkei in Europe or the Financial Times. We consume all that data kind of buried. It's a little under the hood. And so we got to get way better at utilizing that. Talking about that, it reminds me of three different data sets that people provide. And you've clearly been known for one, but I'm curious how you think about the others, especially based on your background. You have technical information, which we've touched a lot on the charts, the trends, the patterns. You've got fundamental, which you can put into two high levels from the providers, which is financial and fundamental earnings reports and looking at a balance sheet income statement and news. How do you think about the other two categories as part of TradingView's overall mission? The thing is, is our DNA is in technical. So we really have to flex our muscles to build outside of our expertise. And in a lot of cases, we turn to third parties for that. We may partner with people to help with spreadsheets and more financial workflows. But we're working a lot in terms of screener tools, which will ultimately influence some of the stuff we're building for, say, downloadable data that you could actually embed into Excel, as well as some other plugins that we're working on, knowing full well that there are plenty of workflows that do not rely on, say, a web platform, but just old school tech. But yeah, every mile that we make in charting, we make a couple inches in the other categories because it's a whole new business in itself. And God bless the people who are experts in spreadsheet technology. But yeah, it's a whole different world. So this has been a lot of fun, Pierce. I enjoy talking with you and I appreciate the time. We've been ending our podcast with the Gardner hype cycle. Thank you for reminding me of the name of it because I was searching for the what I call the greed fear index. But based on your position in the market, where would you say we are on the hype cycle? Yeah, I don't know. I actually love it as a closing question because it gives you a sense of where my head's at, probably where TradingView's head's out. Have we gone through the boom and bust? I would say in the overall hype cycle, I think we're still a bit on the way down. And I know that sucks to hear. I am actually watching headlines on a regular basis. And based on the stuff that's still coming out in terms of some of these companies who are essentially going public with no revenues or crash and burning, or we're obviously done with a lot of the SPAC mania. And thank God that we didn't actually SPAC when we could have, because Jesus, there's a lot of weird, terrible things coming out now that markets are crashing. You did have the WeWork bankruptcy, I think yesterday, which is another one of those shakeout moments. In terms of rates, I think it's safe to say that rates really haven't had the full effect that people were really expecting them to have yet. And that's an important factor. I don't think people realize in, say, the commercial real estate market, how substantial a hole a lot of these businesses have in their books. And a lot of them have basically forward carried those losses into years to come, knowing full well that their expectation was that markets would come ripping back because rates would drop within the next 12 months. Sadly enough, I don't think that's the case. And I think more and more people are starting to agree that higher for longer is the thesis. And what that really means to me is that there's going to be a lot of rebalancing of what, say, a commercial real estate player or a lot of these SMB lenders, et cetera, have to come to terms with in terms of how they're going to mark their books. And then on the private side, from a venture perspective, we also have to come to terms with the fact that a lot of people are going to start marking their books on venture. It's, that's been a long time coming. And we, trading view are a bit different as we are profitable. So there's a very different business to be had in a profitable cycle versus a burn money as fast as you can cycle. 
which we're not in anymore. We were briefly. But as a result, I think a lot of people will have to write down what they think about the valuation of their businesses. That will impact a lot of the venture capitalists who go out and raise money. And I think a lot of that is still yet to come. But I will say a lot of that initial bust, if you will, is definitely past. And so I don't think we're in the trough of disillusionment yet, which is the bottom of that cycle. I think we're still a little bit on the way down, knowing full well that there's still some more to come, I think, in terms of the higher for longer scenario and where that plays out. That's my cynical take. You're going to hate me for it because obviously on CNBC, they would just say, oh yeah, bullish, always, nothing to worry about. But I'm bullish on TradingView for sure. And obviously bullish on the podcast. Thanks, Pierce. I appreciate your time today. If you enjoyed this episode, check out joincolossus.com. There you will find every episode of this podcast, along with transcripts, our weekly newsletter, and resources to continue your learning.